Hello, you're listening to The Game Podcast. This is part one of our mega Premier League season preview. I'm Tom Clark, and joining me for this special two-part show, we've got the A-team, Alison Rudd, Tom Roddy, and our favourite former pro, no, Tony Cascarino couldn't make it, <laughs> so we'll have to make do with Gregor Robertson. Now, guys, there's so much to discuss. I can't, I've not even got time to ask how the holidays were. Tom Roddy, you've got a bit of a tan, looking pretty oh, good. Yeah, little bit. A little bit from, from that tour with Chelsea. We'll come to that later, but we're going to dive straight in because there's so much to talk about. And we're starting quick fire, right? So in one word, who is going to win the Premier League this season? Alison Rudd. Liverpool. Gregor Robson. City. Tom Roddy. City. Two for City, one deluded Liverpool fan. Great. Now we've ticked that off, we can get to the really exciting stuff. Luton Town, everyone's favourite fairy tale from last season arriving in the Premier League nine years after they're plugging away in non-league football. They begin their campaign with a trip to Brighton. Now, Gregor, you knew I was going to come to you first. <laughs> first question. It's the big one. Another miracle. They're going to survive this season. That's the question. Uh, it's going to be tough for them, obviously, but um, this, this is one of the, the great stories in the Premier League era, I think, because what Luton have been through is uh, extraordinary. And the club that emerged after... You know, their, their famous betrayal by the FA as the, the flag at Kenilworth Road still says. Um, you know, the minus 40 points, close to extinction. Uh, as you say, the drop into non-league. The club that emerged has been one of the best run in England. I would say the best run in England, actually, for the last decade. And this is the result. It's, you know, there are so many things that... that are, they gave supporters, the supporter trust chairs in the club. Uh, the the club is basically owned and run by a bunch of supporters, some of them very wealthy. Uh, so many positive things have done off the field. And I think all of that, although it's nothing to do with football, that's not going to help them on the on the pitch in the Premier League. It's It gave them the spirit and the sort of belief that they can achieve uh, amazing things, which has got them to the Premier League. Now, clearly it's a huge step up. Um, but Although, you know, it's much derided to Kenilworth Road, I think their home form is going to be absolutely crucial for them. And I think it will give them a chance because it's like nothing the Premier League has ever seen before. It's so tight, so compact, so hostile, um, and so old-fashioned. And the football is a little bit old-fashioned. I mean, they've, they've, they've verged between various styles of play in, in, in that decade. A lot of it underneath, and Jones started out being... You know, really expansive, uh, attractive football to watch, and then they kind of became a bit more effect. Gradually, became more and more effective. And when Rob Edwards took over last season, he saw that there was an effective team on the pitch, and he didn't change much. Now they might tinker it a little bit, but they get the ball forward quickly. They've got two very powerful forwards in in uh, Carlton Morris and uh, Adebayo, and it's going to be hard for teams when they visit the Kenny. Um, so. It's going to be thrilling to see as well, you know. Yeah. Manchester City, Man United, Liverpool turning up at Kenilworth Road. Yeah. Brilliant. That's that's the bit that fascinates me slightly. You know, you mentioned the much derided Kenilworth Road there. I've been there as a fan. You've been there as a player. Yeah. Like, Alison, I've been there as a reporter. You've been there as a reporter. But this is kind of what I wanted to touch on because part of the Luton narrative feels to me a bit like, oh, the plucky underdog type thing is, is, the, is the highest it's ever been for any new team in the Premier League in recent era because of the Kenilworth Road factor because of the, you know, a bit of ramshackle, because of Gregor, as you say, you picked up some players there like Carlton Morris, he was playing in League One, not not necessarily in, you know, 
um, pulling up any trees and being like a superstar either. So, Alison, how do you feel about the kind of plucky underdog vibe that's going on with Luton? Is it slightly patronising? Well, well, that's an interesting word because Owen Slot um, wrote a piece in the paper on Saturday where he strove to not be patronising. And in fact, he kept saying in his column, this is not to be patronising <laughs> because it's really hard. And he did it. He he went, he went, he sort of drove via Kenilworth Road just to make sure he could see them before he watched them in a friendly. And he wanted to talk to fans. And they're so up for it. There's none, I, th I think we'll probably talk about the other promoted teams where there is some negativity amongst supporters. There is none amongst the Luton fans because what's the point? This There's no point being bitter about or worried about a fairy tale. But then if you talk about it in fairy tale te terms, it does sound like you're being patronising because you're not talking about the reality. I'm slightly embarrassed that Kenilworth Road won't be quite as rickety as it was because they have to make improvements for the media. The, as the press. They've heard out the rose coming. Yeah, <laughs> She's coming back, lads. Christ. Bloody hell, someone get the old grey tea in. <laughs> Jasmine Pearls. And... And so it, we, there will be a set that it will feel diff slightly different because they're having to make changes, the construct construction changes, so that it fits the rules for Premier League broadcast and media requirements. And I'm just slightly scared what that's going to look like. Will it make it look? You could do much to polish the. What's the prize? Yeah. I love it though. I love that. But it it there's a beauty in its ramshackleness. Oh, Which if you have elements of modernity, that's what makes it look naff. That's my worry, that it won't be the pure, the pure old-fashioned ground. It will have elements of, oh, look at that shiny new clock and those new seats and those new broadcast bits. It won't, it won't be what it was. And that's only because of the media. They, otherwise, they would have just... Well, I don't think the players, the, I don't think the, the opposition players will, will recognise that as much. It'll be the vicinity of the fans it i i haven't experienced it yet so i i don't know but my when i look at it and i've watched games at kenilworth road and thinking of man united and erling Haaland and all these these players who will be going there ne next this season signing for luton <laughs> it made me think of um of upton park and the way people like julian dix would talk about it becoming kind of this a uh, cauldron, this place where players did not want to come and play at all. So, and and they have to tap into that. But it feels like there is realism at Luton because they talk about themselves as the orange all blacks, and there's this there's all <laughs> there's almost a feel of uh, Richmond FC about them in the in the the character and the the, the way they approach the culture, but. I saw Gary Sweet, the chief exec there, said that they're a little bit, it's a little bit like taking on a tidal wave without a surfboard. And and I thought that really summed up the realism that they have. And they are taking inspiration from the fact Forrest lost 18 games last season and still survived. So I think they know this is going to be extremely hard, but there, there's belief there and there has to be. I'm not sure there's any, like, you know they're not certainly burdened by expectation, obviously. So they, I think they just want to do what they've been doing, but you know, obviously take it up a level. And I think they've been reflected in some of their signings. 
And well, yeah, you talk about the signings, and that's, I think it's an interesting point that unites all the promoted teams to me, is that none of them seem to have spent a huge amount of money like we've seen other teams before. Um, you know, Luton, Tahith Chong, £4 million from Bournemouth, maybe the kind of only standout signing in terms of in terms of names that people might recognise, you know, that's because that's another part of Luton's journey and arrival in the Premier League. A lot of it is unknown. You know, Gregor, you talked last season about Marvellous Nakamba, who was on loan there, um, and what a great player he was. But for a lot of people, they won't they won't know anything about him. So that's why I was picking out someone like Chong. Do you think that is an important part of their, you know, promotion, that they didn't go and spend a load of money and start signing a load of superstar players? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be... That wouldn't be Luton Town. It wouldn't be their the kind of club that they are a lot of the money is going to like it's probably going to go towards the construction of their new stadium which has been a long time in the in the making and and you know maintaining a kind of a degree of prudence is very important for them Ryan Giles I'll pick out as well the left wing back for Wolves outstanding a lot of assists last season brilliant left foot Um, I think if Wolves weren't kind of undertaking a bit of a fire sale they probably wouldn't have sold him so I think he's he would be my standout um, but yeah, any you know, they don't want to to deviate from the from the the, the kind of tried and tested method that has got them here, and maintaining that sort of underdog spirit as well, uh, because they had one of the lowest budgets in the championship mm. last season. Never mind the Premier League; it's not you know they can't suddenly just rip all that up and start throwing silly money at, at kind of at stars. It's about players who who are going to add value in the long term as well, because if they go down, then they want to be in a good position to be able to try and bounce back. And there's no the, the fans aren't demanding unrealistic purchases either. They're they're delighted that four million quid's been spent on yeah. one layer. <laughs> I mean that's heady stuff for them. So you maintain that sense of unity with the fan base and the local community and the team. No one's no one's putting their hand up and saying, "How on earth are we going to do this unless we spend lots of money?" No no one seems to be demanding that at Luton. They're very happy with what they are. And that's worth, I don't know, that must be worth three points. <laughs> <laughs> so they're off and running, great. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Head start already. Now, because I'm conscious that we want to talk about as many teams as possible, linking to Luton slightly, Greg, and this is probably a question for you. Do you feel, I was thinking about this as we're planning the show, do you feel it's fair to group Sheffield United in with Luton in terms of some of those characteristics we've talked about, in terms of like underdog spirit a little bit? That's a slightly bigger club and have been used to the the, the heights of um, the Premier League more recently. But in terms of the journey that they've been on, and in Paul Heckingbottom, a manager that you know has had his ups and downs in his managerial career already, do you think it's fair to kind of attribute some of the similar characteristics? Because similarly in the window as well, they've not spent a great deal of money. They've only signed a couple of players. Um, Austin Trusty, the defender from Arsenal recently, is kind of the most significant purchase they've made so far for five million quid. So. Do you think there's similarities there with Luton? Yes, although I think there's a difference in sort of attitude and and uh, acceptance of that among the supporters because I think Sheffield United last season they kind of they were under their owner he kind of turned off the tap financially and uh, you know they they struggled to get over the line. And they did it with a lot of kind of narrow margin victories towards the end. So there was a lot of spirit in that regard. And it was a lot of the, the same team and group that, that had been promoted under Chris Wilder and had an experienced Premier League football in the past. They managed to keep hold, hold of a lot of that team. That's still true to an extent, although if let go Billy Sharp, who's been the talisman for a long time, Enda Stevens, another long-term player who was beat with them in League One, 
Um, and they've lost a lot of players who were important loan signers last season. Tommy Doyle from Man City, James McAtee from, from Man City as well. Um, and they've lost Billman and Dai, who was their star player, who sold to Marseille for 20 million. That's a huge blow. So there's a, although there are some parallels between the two clubs, Luton have outspent them. Um, and the kind of the attitude and the sort of you know the expectancy and you know almost how much a team are looking forward to the season is very different because Sheffield United feel that they need to make some some additions. I'd say Sheffield United are undoubtedly weaker this season as we as things stand than the team that came up last season. That's but that's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, I'm trying to think of a team that were as underprepared for a promotion season than Sheffield United because. They came up not with. They didn't come up, as you say, with any sort of sense of they're overspent or they've, you know, it's a gilded route to the Premier League. They did it through guts and um, sensible management. But they are. They've been. I mean, they've got nobody there. They've got nobody left. How can you? How can you go up to the Premier League? It's the Premier League. It's the elite league, and you've lost most of the players that were at the core of you getting promotion. The owner wants to sell, I think. I mean, the tap's turned off. I mean, can you be more negative than the tap? How can you be more negative than the tap being turned off? He's really, really squeezed it off, so it's broken. It's broken, it's still <laughs> off in your hands and you'll never turn it on again. And there's that sense of, whereas there's possibly blind optimism at Luton, there isn't even that at Sheffield United. I think most fans would expect it's going to be a grind and difficult. And I don't know what you cling to if you're Sheffield United. I can't, I haven't even sort of looking on, you know, fan sites and so on. I haven't even seen much love for Heckenbottom at all, really. And there ought to be, but there isn't because they don't feel he's got what it takes to handle this complete lack of resources. Yeah, I, th- I think they're, they're completely different narratives, Luton and, and Sheffield United, because even even with Heckingbottom as well, uh, from the outside, everyone will be willing Rob Edwards on after the story of Watford, 11 games in charge and getting sacked. Everyone will will want him to do well. Will want Luton to do well, and and it's a, a phrase we use quite often. There'll be they could be a lot of people second team this season because Luton will be kind of riding the crest of a wave, and and that it's a bit of a free hit. Whereas with Sheffield United, and you had the turbulence of last season with Dozy and Bozy, the uh, Tingo billionaire, which which fell through, looked like it was going to go through and then fell through. And Prince Abdullah still wanting to sell. There's that uncertainty there. And to go into the season weaker than they were, significantly weaker because of Illiman and Dai being out and not having the experience of Billy Sharp anymore, uh, it, it starts the season on a massive negative. But I think... It's this, this is what's interesting to me hearing you guys talk about it because as a fan from the outside and you know at this point in the season people are doing their fantasy football teams and looking at the Sheffield United team there's some absolute stalwarts in there from years gone by you know from the last time they were in the Premier League you know you've got your Bulldogs uh, Flex you know the people yeah exactly people be looking at that and thinking does that not give you the experience and the backbone you've got also got players like Rian Brewster with a point to prove particularly at the Premier League level they spent a huge amount of money on him last time out does that, does that give them any hope or, are, you know, are we kind of making the point that these guys are, you know, players from yesteryear almost? No, I mean, I think they've moved on a couple that were players from yesteryear. But Billy Sharp's 
influences what was on the wing. Mm. Uh, I think he's 37. But he's a, he was just a huge leader and figure at the club. But his, yeah, his, his influence on the pitch was waning, definitely. Um, and there are players with experience, undoubtedly, from the last stint in the Premier League. Um, and they have spirit. They they blocked out a lot of noise last season, a lot of stuff that wasn't even in the public domain, you know, until until they came up. Things like, you know, not paying the bill for their, you know, dating, their data and scouting software so they couldn't do any pre-match analysis. They didn't pay the, the gas bill so they, they didn't have undersoil heating at the training group. The tap really was to end off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On behind the scenes that made their life very difficult and they blocked it all out and they got through it and Eckenbottom did a brilliant job there's this kind of idea that Chef United you know kept a hold of players on big big money because they had been in the Premier League that you know they still had a Premier League squad it was never a Premier League squad and they all had big cuts in their contracts they weren't on big money I, I, I know that the players in the second season after the 50% cut that everyone gets took a 20% cut so a lot of the players won hugely reduced salaries than from the Premier League days. So what you know, they have all that, they have all that kind of spirit still, but it's it's just a different world when they step back into the Premier League and they need additions. That they know that. They know that the twenty Eckenbottom said it publicly, they need the twenty million pounds that was you know, brought in from, from the Endai sale to be invested, reinvested. That's tw- still twenty million pounds. What does that get you today? But that's what they have. Sorry, I interrupted you. So sort of. Okay. Um, what's interesting is that um, there are, there were what we have evidence of two versions of Sheffield United in recent history in the Premier League. So, they if they're clever, they could tap into that amazing season where they surprised everybody and nobody understood the formation they were playing and inverted fullbacks and so on. And Chris Wilder had a sort of energy and optimism, and they. They did more than anyone thought they would. They were amazing. And then you had the Sheffield United who just sort of crumbled, almost couldn't handle having any weight of, you know, even a tiny weight of expectation about them in the Premier League. So that's actually really useful experience. They know how to succeed in the Premier League and they know how to fail miserably in the Premier League, which is something that Luton don't have. That has to count. Oh, for three or four points. Yeah, it's another three or four points. They're off the mark as well. I'm I'm excited to say how many you're going to give to Burnley, Alison, because (laughs) let's say you've got the superstar manager, they've blown everyone in the championship out of the water, and they have spent money. You know, when you look at the signings they've made, James Trafford, £19 million from Manchester City, Dara O'Shea, which I think is quite an astute signing from West Brom, uh, the centre-back, they brought in Nathan Redmond as well, Premier League experience. And, And this is a team that I think falls into the category of, you know, that neutrals will be excited to watch, won't they? Um, but also with that, I wonder whether there comes an expectation for them to overperform themselves because there is still that step up, isn't there, from the Championship to the Premier League? Even when you've got Vincent Company in charge, who knows knows the league, knows all the managers, his best mates with Pep. Alison, do you think there's an element of that where are you going to be giving them three and four points as well or are you going to be giving them eight? I'm going to give them minus two because I think it's that's bad preparation, actually. And I'm getting really mixed messages about what we can expect Burnley to be in the early stages of the Premier League because in the championship it was all about oh they're you know they're they're playing us off the park this is expansive football this is intelligent football this beautiful almost beautiful football and yet you've managed to in one of the, the most tough physical leagues in the world you've managed to 
you know, almost win promotion at a canter. And how revolutionary is Vincent Company to do that? Not only in the division, but at, the, at a club that had become Deichball and knew its identity. So he just turned it on its head. And yet, he I've heard Company praising the uh, resilience and the doggedness and the pressing and the fighting of his players in pre-season. So I feel he knows that to get anywhere in the Premier League, to just try and be pretty, they're going to be absolutely slaughtered. So they have to add this element of being hard to beat and being patient in games and so on. I just feel there could potentially be an identity crisis there that what 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 do you do? It doesn't seem to me like they're on that role where they think they won the championship and they just keep going. Uh, for example, I felt Brentford promotion they kept playing the way they'd been playing and they had a really strong identity and made no adjustments to the fact they were now going to be in the Premier League um, helped by the fact that they won quite a lot of cup games against Premier League teams Burnley lost I think it was 5-0 to Manchester City okay it was Manchester City but not Manchester City trying very hard I, I do feel I do feel that they haven't got that sense of complete identity and momentum I know I don't know that we know what we are going what Burnley were going to see and if it's a hodgepodge if it's not neither one thing nor the other that might mean they start on minus two <laughs> I would agree that the you know it'll be interesting to see how strong their commitment is to playing the way that they played in the championship because the overall was remarkable in one pre-season mm. last pre-season um, they went from the team who had the lowest possession in the in the Premier League to the team with the highest in, in the championship. You know, I think they played about 250 passes more per game. Clearly, they're playing against better opposition now and it's going to be all the all those other, the other side of the game, which they were still... That was you know, he's, Often you hear Vincent Company coming on after a game and the first thing he talked about was the effort and the desire and the pressing and all the things that you think when you've just had 65% of the ball, you know, we'd be down the list a little bit, but that's what he's all about. That's his... That's his kind of base point. That's where he, has, you know, that's what he emphasises first and foremost. So, obviously, those things are going to be more important for them in the in the Premier League. And the other thing is, you know, they are they're going to be quite inexperienced because they're a very young team. And I'm getting sort of vague echoes of the conversation we had about Southampton last summer mm. and the fact that they've, you know, spent a lot of money on a 20 year old goalkeeper. It's a kind of underlings their commitment to this youthful project. Uh, and like everyone is saying, I'm looking at the ages of 22, 20, 23, 24, 22, 18. Nathan Redmond's 29. He's the kind of one, you know, he's from Southampton, ironically. Um, so there's a lot of inexperience there. And so that allied with, you know, how, how committed they're going to be to playing the expansive football that Vincent Company sort of wowed the championship with last season is going to be fascinating to watch because they were great to watch last year. They, you know, it was a 4 3 3, but when they, when they had the ball, sometimes it was like a three-two-five or a two-three-five. They just pile players forward, high and wide, and get overloads as much as they can. Um, it was like City, City light. It was. They've been playing three at the back in pre-season. Do you expect them to just change according to the? They also played quite fluidly though too. That's the thing. Although they lined up, generally speaking, in a back four in the Championship, but often when they had the ball, as I say, it reverted to either two or three, and 
the other thing that's important is, which is similar to Sheffield United, is they don't have Ian Matson, mm-hmm. who was huge for them at left back, Chelsea Loney. They don't have Nathan Teller, who was a top scorer from Southampton, who they were very keen to keep Southampton. And Harwood Bellis. They don't have Taylor Harwood Bellis from Man City. They coped with him when he was injured for a part of the season last season, but Matson was huge. He was the inverted left back, big part of that system. He stepped into midfield. They're big holes to fill. I thought we were going to have Burnley in like 11th say guys. I'm, I'm <laughs> stunned. Tom, uh, you give us give us some positives, surely. I, I, I No, I'd, uh, I think... You're relegating them as well, I can't believe. Yeah, it's going straight <laughs> down. James, James Trafford, that signing to me, suggested that they are going to persist with this style of play. But as soon as they bought him, even Guardiola talking yesterday made me think it were... He described Ortega as having a goalkeeper who you can play with. And I thought... That's why Vincent Company signed James Trafford. They... No, exactly. Yeah, so so that's why they've got him in. And it, it suggests to me they're going to persist with it. And I think we were talking about expectation. I feel like Burnley and Vincent Company himself are heaping expectation on themselves by doing this. And as you said... Um, Gregor, those three players, losing those three players will be really significant. They they benefited, like a lot of smart teams do, they benefited from bringing in loan players from the elite clubs, from the academies that, have, of, uh, that, are, that are at the top, bringing in their best players. But now they've lost them and whether they can replace them, I don't, it doesn't look like they've replaced them yet. And... You know, going back to Sheffield United, their first season in the Premier League, the way they approached it, it was it really it was built on defensive solidity. I think they conceded only like 39 goals, something like that, in which was a record for a promoted side. A lot of teams that are successful coming up, it has to be built on that. I'd I'd be I'd be amazed if Burnley are as successful if they do persist with that that way of playing then what's James Trafford not doing I'm a big believer in nominative determinants that that I reckon he'll probably join them when he's when he's old yeah yeah he'll be the back he'll be the backup goalkeeper won't he he'll be the number two now I'm not going to ask you who's going to stay up I think a lot of the conversation there has led me to asking a question you know which fans are going to enjoy their season most out of those three teams Thinking about some of the things we've talked about in terms of expectation, um, style of play, um, home ground, home atmosphere, you know, which fans are going to enjoy their season most, irrespective of whether they stay up or not? Gregor? Tom? Yeah, Luton. Dallas? Full house, Luton Town fans, get ready for it. You're about to have the best season of your lives. Burnley, Sheffield United. Sounds like you should be a bit worried. Guys are so negative already. Speaking of negative... The next team, we've talked about expectation, we've talked about fan pressure, we've talked about signings. You know who I'm going to be talking about now? West Ham United. Now, you cannot think, well, I certainly can't anyway, of a summer where you could lose a player of such colossal importance as Declan Rice for such a huge transfer fee and be sat here a week before the season starts having signed no one. No one. Alison, I'm going to come to you first because you wrote your Sunday Times column about this and about the perfect person that they should be signing. They've not signed him already. In fact, I'm completely with you. James Ward-Prowse, why haven't they gone and signed him already? 
But also, what does the fact that they haven't signed either him or anyone say about the situation at West Ham going into this season? I think this completely sums up everything you need to know about West Ham's ownership. They have got 105 million quid in the bank, which means everyone, they're scared. Everyone else is thinking, oh, we can we can pump up the prices here, yeah, can't we? So if, if West Ham think a player's worth 20 million, people are going to say, well, we'll off 35 because we know you've got the money. And they're so, I think they're so paranoid about not being taken for a ride on that, that they don't, they don't, it's almost like they are offended that we all know how much they've got in the bank. It's like you knowing, Gregor, how much savings I've got in my little savings account. I don't want people to, <laughs> I don't want people to know that. And they, and they, they just don't want to be exploited on that. So they've gone to the other extreme and are being very tight fisted. Plus you've got, um, a new setup there where they've got a technical director, which they didn't have before, which acts as a a buffer between Moyes and the board. Now, David Moyes ought to be sitting over his porridge today, feeling in a great position because he's won he's won a European title with them. He survived various will he be sacked scares last season, but he kept them in the Premier League. He won some silverware. The board backed him and would would you you'd expect them to be feeling quite smug that they did that and that they would listen to who he thinks would be good for the team to make sure they don't have that awful juggling act again where you know one thing's going to suffer but no they've got a technical director what does a te- technical director do if you're a technical director and you've just been appointed on a nice salary you're not going to impress everybody anybody if you say well I think what the team needs is James Ward-Prowse because everybody knows who James Ward-Prowse is. They know his stats, they know how great he's at set pieces, they know how reliable he is, you know, they know what a great leader he is, they know his um, accuracy of passing is fantastic, his vision is great. He's not a direct replacement for Declan Rice, but he sure as hell will make them a, it, plug that hole slightly. And and I'm sort of slightly amazed that West Ham are the lead club looking at him. I, I think he'd fit in anywhere in the Premier League, to be quite honest, and he shouldn't be in the uh, Championship although he has made an appearance in the championship, shouldn't be there. But no, if you're a technical director, presumably charged with unearthing talent at, you know, low cost that no one's heard of because you've done your analysis on them, you're not going to recommend James Ward-Prowse. So you're at this stumbling block now where presumably the technical director, Tim Stedton, I think, he's, he's presumably putting up names that are unproven, they might end up being great. I'm sure he's very good at his job. Uh, but do that as well. But you really must bring in somebody who knows what it takes to run a midfield. And if it's going to... Uh, Southampton want around £40 million for him. West Ham's offer was initially £30 million. For goodness sake, he's... I, I would argue James Ward-Prowse is worth that embarrassment of having to pay an extra 10 because you've got money in the bank. Tom, I want to come to you on one of the points Alison made at the start there, which was made slightly in jest, but it is a very good point about the fee that they got for Declan Rice and the knock-on impact that that can have. You you spend your summer chasing transfer stories a lot of the time, speaking to agents and things. Does that play a part in clubs' thinking in terms of negotiations when, when fees are so publicly well-known? Does that have an impact on future deals? Yeah, absolutely. But what tends to be the case is that a club will <laughs> a club will get their replacement in before the deal is finalized which is what i expected to happen with west ham we 
there is no deal that has happened or will happen this summer that was more expected than Declan Rice going, going, leaving West Ham to go to Arsenal or wherever he went, even if it ended up being Man City. He was always going to leave West Ham this summer. So that West Ham had to prepare for that. And they, they haven't. Um, there, there is this suggestion that they have taken the approach of firing out these offers to various clubs for potential replacements, going in with offers that they see as value. So Scott McTominay, uh, Conor Gallagher at Chelsea, James Ward-Prowse at Southampton, and basically saying, we've put, we've, we've put out these offers. Whoever accepts it first will be the one will be the one we go for and they've got nothing so far so it's a it's a unique approach to take and one I wouldn't advise to anybody to be honest right now but there's something of a of a civil war as well kind of going on with the arrival of Tim Steiden because David Moyes was quite resistant to this and I, and I don't think it was a case of too much of a power struggle really I think he he kind of understood the the need of a technical director. I don't, I don't think Mark Noble was really ready to take on this role. It was a bit of a he was sporting director, and it was more of an ambassadorial position. But at the moment, what you're seeing with these these bids and the the players that they're interested in are are Moy's ideas. You're not. I don't think we're seeing Tim Steiden's ideas yet, and we probably will. The closer that the the transfer window uh, gets to close to closing, um, and if I was Moyes, I would be quite unsettled by the idea of this technical director being brought in. And we were talking about the idea of predictions. I mean, I would be amazed if David Moyes is manager of West Ham at the end of the season because so many times last season it was it didn't look like it was going to work and. It, feels like a club that is preparing for a new era. Agree? Worried about Moyes? Worried about West Ham? He's definitely worried about West Ham. Um, it's just so West Ham, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I followed the European tour last season. It was a, a brilliant night in Prague. Um, and the celebrations were outstanding as well and <laughs> around, you know, around East London. Um, and from that, in the space of a few weeks kind of return to West Ham being in a crisis. Uh, and it's remarkable that you, as Tom says, a, a, a transfer that was so, you know, easily forecast um, and they're still not signed a single player. It's extraordinary. Um, ultimately, as well, I think I think David Moyes is right. I think they do need players who have Premier League experience and know, know the league. And they kind of know what they're getting. Because so you think they get the, those three players that Tom listed just to interrupt. You think they're the kind of players that are a good a good fit. Yeah, or yeah, or you know, if they got two of them, yeah, mm. brilliant. Um, because Scamacca was a was a, a disaster, and he's he's on his way out. Uh, Vlasic is kind of back after a second loan, I think, isn't he? He's got success. No, I mean, no, these, these are players who but, have yeah, no but, Premier League experience. And... But last summer's even at Paqueta came good. Mm towards the end of the season and helped them you know in Europe but it took a long time for them to come good and we're both those players had injuries uh, Agard and Tilo Kerr kind of 
came good a bit as well. It qualified successes, but I think it's, they need someone if they don't want to be in a relegation battle. You know, at Christmas, they need people who come in and know and hit the ground running and know the know the league. Um, I don't know if I dreamt this, but didn't at some point Moyes has vocalised that he don't he doesn't know what it is about West Ham, but they seem to have trouble integrating players from abroad. He, he when when players have struggle to score the goals they're expected to score or just have the impact they're expected to have. And it happens at other clubs. It is possible to bring in a player from with no Premier League experience. Course, yeah. Almost hit the ground running. But West Ham have a sort of history of it not happening. And I wonder if that has got something to do with them bringing in a technical director as though he's almost, you know, let the genie out of the bottle and let people know what they shouldn't know, that there's a magic touch that we don't have here. The other thing is that the, to your point, David Moyes has a bit of a history with those things that you talked about there, Alison, as well. Not being able to integrate players, particularly from abroad, and you know, superstar signings—they'll suddenly splurge thirty million on a striker from the French league or something, and then he scores five goals and he's shipped off to Juventus on loan twelve months later. That is, a, to me, that is as much David Moyes as it is West Ham, and that's where I wonder whether there's a bit of a clash going on and where they can't go beyond some of the heights that they reach, whether it's winning in Europe finishing sixth so I mean the question then is do we think they're going to be in a relegation scrap this season to all of you yes they, if, if Stephen Moyes is the manager they need to do what they need to back him yeah and he deserves to be backed after what happened last season because like that, that that was a a moment that that club will remember forever um but they're, they're not backing them and bringing in a technical, technical director who clearly has a, a difference of opinion about the kid type of recruits that, that the club needs to bring in is undermining them. So if David Moyes is the manager, they need to back him and they're not backing him, which means they're going to be in a relegation. But it's so like, counterproductive to bring in a technical director who, if that, techni- if that technical director feels he has a point to prove to show off his analytics for players you know in the bottom half of league one in France or wherever wherever it might be surely the best technical director is somebody who has the confidence to say I've done the analysis and you do need Conor Gallagher and you do need James Ward Prowse and not be scared that the owners are going to say well, why are we paying you all that money for the bleeding obvious I think part of that though is to do with evaluations because we have look, we see some of the prices that clubs are demanding this summer and it's extraordinary and so if they, you know, if they sign two of those players, that's their budget gone. Money gone. Yeah. So they might, they might end up signing one of them, and then I've turned into the two technical directors and said, "Do your magic." <laughs> <laughs> Tom, final word on West Ham. Yeah, it, it, it make it still makes sense to me. I mean, if they got two of those, if they got Conor Gallagher and James Ward Prowse, I think that's, I think that would be a, a good way of replacing Declan Rice. It, it, but it's made me think of the summer of 2013 when you had. Spurs lining up those the magnificent seven and actually <laughs> some of them didn't work out uh, but then you've got Eric Lamella who did well at Spurs you've got Christian Eriksen who was outstanding at Spurs this is obviously from the Gareth Bale money and even though I don't see West Ham lining up a group of players saying this is what we've spent on Declan uh, spent the Declan Rice money on especially as it might just be um, it's an empty image at the moment but they 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 should invest that money in and I think in tried and trusted players as well. So Ward Prowse and Gallagher makes total sense to me. They've had success at that level in the Premier League and 
Warprow should be able to get over the line at a reasonable price. I've just realised what's happening. Oh, no. They want them back. <laughs> <laughs> this is the master plan, the Moisey master plan. Now, that would be a striker to bring in and not score any goals. That would be a real failure, wouldn't it? Now, I feel like West Ham are one of those teams that have so many different facets to the way that they run and the kind of support or pressure. We could spend an entire show talking about West Ham, I feel, and another club that we could do exactly that with is Chelsea. Now, in last season's preview show, one man made an incredible prediction. He said that come this summer, the one we're in now, Mauricio Pochettino would be Chelsea manager. Now, that journalist was young Tom Roddy here. <laughs> What a stunning, stunning prediction. So I'm going to hand over to you, not only for that prediction, but because you've been on tour with them this summer. Tell us all about it. Tell us about the tour. Tell us about Pochettino. And also tell Chelsea fans where they're going to be this time next year. <laughs> well, who's going to be manager yeah, next exactly. year? I think it will still be Pochettino this time next year. No, it was a, um, I think there were, it was actually a, a quite a promising tour from a team perspective in that... By the midway stage of, I think it was five games in the end, you were seeing Pochettino's influence. You were seeing the development of young players like Andre Santos, who I think will have a, a role this year and certainly will have to have a role at the moment because one of the problems they had going into the tour was this unbalanced side, hugely unbalanced side. And there was a there was a press conference that we had uh, with Pochettino relatively early on. I think it was in Philadelphia. And he it felt like he had a message to say. His his English has gone a little bit backwards since he was in Tottenham. And a, uh, a lot of people would say, I, d I don't think he quite understands the questions. But he knew, and he, even if there was a question about something else, he would go to this message of, I've got an unbalanced squad if we go into the season like this, it's going to be a mess because he went to the US with 29 players and they added two more. So you're getting close to that 33 number. Romelu Lukaku is still at the club at the moment. So is Hakim Ziyech, which is uh, already a mess in itself that those uh, futures haven't been sorted. And in midfield, he had five players. And of that, five only two were senior Enzo Fernandez and Conor Gallagher who we've just been talking about could end up leaving the club anyway this summer so they've got huge depth in those wide attacking positions they had reasonable depth in defense uh, especially center back I mean one game summed it up where you had Ben Chilwell at left back for the first half Mark Cucurella left back for the second half. You had the left back Ian Matson playing left wing, uh, playing left wing, and you had the left back Lewis Hall playing in centre mid. So they had four left backs. So well stocked for left. Backs. Yeah, exactly, and and expensive left backs. But I don't think they've danced enough in the transfer window to give them the depth. Uh, it, it was an encouraging pre-season in terms of performances, but I'm not entirely convinced it's going to translate into a Premier League season. 
there's a there's a fragility to that squad that you can see with Wesley Fofana has to undergo reconstruction of his ACL and in centre-back they looked so strong and suddenly they've got Thiago Silva who's 38 years old now and Trevor Shalabar who personally I've never thought is is good enough to be a Chelsea centre-back and they've got to go into the market and spend uh, 38 million on, on Axel Dezazi who is a brilliant surname for the tabloid headline writers um and that's a big chunk of the budget which has already gone um they haven't yet solved the striker issue um christopher and kunku looks very good but and nicholas jackson looked very good in pre-season again whether that can work in in a premier league season in the intensity of that when they're actually playing against uh, the top teams I'm not sure yet and, and it's just that that lack of depth that they have and the Caicedo deal has just gone on and on and on and on and they I think they'll end up spending 90 million pounds on him I think it will get done but I think they'll end up spending 90 million pounds on him and what happens if then Enzo Fernandez gets injured they just what struck me yesterday watching the Community Shield uh, with Arsenal was how quickly Arteta has added experience and depth to his t- to his team, to his squad. They've got options and competition in all areas. I think Chelsea might have a, a decent starting eleven this season. I don't know if they have a decent squad. Yeah. Tom, how, how many minutes of Chelsea did you see on tour? What's five times 90? Okay. <laughs> so, I, this is a genuine question. I know most things I say sound like I'm being sarcastic, <laughs> but genuinely, what, watching them intently, Enzo Fernandez, does he look like a proper star? I, I've been underwhelmed by him. I also don't, I don't think he's fit enough, which is... What's wrong with his fitness? I just don't, I don't think he's um, at the level of fitness for the Premier League yet, and it, and maybe he will be for this season. But certainly last year, I always thought he he looked a little. He's got quality on the ball, but the way I think that area of the pitch is where people get um, shown out in 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 the Premier League. And to be fair to him. Last year he had uh, he had the league in South America. Then he had the season with Benfica. He had the World Cup. He had a hell of a lot of games. Um, so fatigue was to be expected. I do think he's got the quality on the ball, and I think we spoke to him um, not long after he came in. He's got the character. He's he's re- he's got star quality about him. And I think he's got the quality on the ball, and Pochettino certainly likes him. I, I think it'll work out. Just coming back to Pochettino, I, I want to make sure we kind of take listeners behind the scenes a little bit this season, and you guys get access to managers and players in press conferences. And I feel like there's so much to be gained from body language and interpreting like how how they speak. And it strikes me that you know you're talking about a preseason there with a new manager. And he's already trotting out a kind of mantra of this is why I'm not doing so well. Yeah, You know, you were talking there about, oh, the squad's bloated. We've not got this. We've not got this. 
that to me is quite striking when we've not even kicked off yet. You know, was that the tone as well? Was the message, I'm a bit downtrodden almost? The message was, I am so happy. He had this, he had, he had this kind of uh, tick where he would say, I am so happy, even in the middle of a sentence where he was saying why he's not happy. <laughs> it was, I think it was probably a reflection on last pre-season where I've never seen a manager more uncomfortable than Thomas Tuchel on that pre-season tour. And I remember after the Arsenal game in Orlando when they lost 3-0, asking him whether they were ready for the season. He said, no, of course we're not. We're, we're not ready. And I think it is an ownership that wants their manager to be uh, to to represent them in some ways, and and so that's why I think he kept saying I am so happy. But reading between the lines, even on the preparations for the tour, because one of Thomas Tuchel's issues last year was the amount of travel. They went from LA to Las Vegas to Charlotte in North Carolina to Orlando, and he was just saying it's exhausting. It's so tiring for the players. I felt like this year was even worse than that in terms of the amount of travel. I mean, the players were, they started in Chapel Hill in North Carolina, then they went to Philadelphia, and that was their base. And what they did was treated games almost like a Champions League game. So uh, they played in Philadelphia. The next game was in Atlanta. So they flew into Atlanta, flew, and then flew back to Philadelphia after the game so they're landing going to bed at three four in the morning like a champions league game maybe they just want that champions league experience because <laughs> they went out there this year but um and then same with washington dc and then finishing in chicago it's a two and a half week tour it's a long long time um and i and pochettino one of the quotes that stood out to me was him saying we we had to adapt to this tour. We arrived and it was, he was basically saying we arrived and it was already booked. And he was basically saying, this isn't what we would, this isn't what we would have done. So whether we see some changes next year when he's, when he's still in the job. Uh, <laughs> no, they don't. It's commercial, isn't it? And I mean, maybe able to tinker it slightly, but he, Pre-season is now like how can of this endurance test? Hmm. <laughs> Clubs travel around the world just because they make enormous sums of money for doing so. You'd have taken a few trips to the US, was you in pre-season? <laughs> right. Before we get into digs about your playing status, which I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but listening to all that insight from Tom, what kind of season do you think no Chelsea idea. fans? Come Honestly. on, come on! You always sit on the fence, mate. No. Just probably put them in a put them in a box. Give me six to ten. Give me fifth to six. Come on, where they're going to be? Uh, yeah, I think top four. I think top four is the target, and I think they'll compete for that. But I don't. I'm not sure they'll they'll get it. I think a big thing, you know, Tom mentioned is is the experience they've lost as well, and you know, big players who've like won the Champions League, been part of the squad, who've won trophies, and they've just swapped them all for potential. Mm. Um, and it's impossible to know what the best team is at the moment, so it's hard to forecast what their 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 finish is going to be. Um, but there are positives. I think um, Levi Colwell has had a brilliant summer, and you know, they're obviously desperate to keep hold of him and. Pochettino loves them. Um, 
He loves everybody. Tappy, we should be Tappy over this long. And Nicholas Jackson up front. Hey, he was he was probably the surprise. Nicholas Jackson was probably the surprise at the tour because he looked he looked really good actually. A little bit like Olivier Giroud in terms of. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I brought I brought Giroud up. But we're we're going to be debating whether Nicholas Jackson's world class or not. <laughs> Um, just in terms of the link-up play, I think him and uh, Nkunku could be really effective together. Also, I, I, like I, we we said at the end of last season, and it's kind of coming true that you know they sold Mason Bout, sold Ruby Loftus Cheek, all of a sudden, bless him a blow, Ethan Ampadu, and Conor Gallagher could be on his way out. Like we'd said that this is that was one positive of the turbulence, the turbulent era that Chelsea have just been living through was the emergence of these players. Um, gave them a bit of like in a beating heart, and now it's been ripped out because of, I think for financial reasons, and and you know there's pure profit on the balance sheet. Um, I, I said last season I thought that'd be quite sad, and it's I still think that's that's the key. I also think that with um, Levi Colwell, I think he'll I think he will be a success. But this time last year, we were sat here talking about Conor Gallagher and. Chelsea and, and Thomas Tuchel in particular thought he was going to be almost the face of that team, that he could be N'Golo Conte 2.0. And then within a few weeks of the season, it was apparent to them that he wasn't and that he wasn't going to be as influential, as integral to the starting eleven as everyone expected him to be. So with Levi Cowell, even though I do think he's going to be a success, I, I just think there's an element of... Um, of PR with the fans around it because you've seen Mount, Loftus-Cheek, uh, all the these academy players leaving and they've got to replace them. They've got to have a, a new face of the academy coming through. So that's why, that's that's what Colwell is. I think Chelsea's, well, I was going to say Chelsea's problem, they've been a hugely successful club, but one difficulty they've had or annoyance, really, from a fan and journalist point of view, is they have an incredible academy, so much talent, so much youth at that club. They've almost run out of places to place them when they go on loan. You know, they're everywhere. And that I think the new owners feel that that's um, something that you can make money out of better and use them better. And I th actually think of all the managers that were in the frame to take over Chelsea, Pochettino is the best at that. He's very good at bringing through youth and understanding because he's got two young sons. I think it helps somehow. He's very good at knowing what a young player needs and whether they're ready to come into the team. And we had a false dawn because of the transfer embargo where Frank Lampard did bring through some youth and that felt like, well, this is what Chelsea should be doing, you know, exploiting the fact they've got this amazing academy. I think now that they're back with wheeling and dealing, I... And offloading, I think I think Pochettino will probably do a decent job where other managers have failed of playing lip service to homegrown talent, but ultimately finding flaws in them. I think Pochettino will give them longer to bed in. And I think you're asking where what bracket you put Chelsea in, I'd say between eighth and fourth. It could be eighth. They could also go How many points is that, Alison, into your <laughs> pre season pluses and minuses? We'll have to work that out later. We'll pu we'll publish a full table. It's a yeah. very complicated one. Yeah. Yeah, developing developing youngsters has been something that ever since Pochettino got uh, 
even linked with the job was one of the attributes we've all spoken about that is a that is a positive and you were talking about insights of the tour one thing he kept referring to was experience that they didn't have enough experience i mean when they the 29 man squad that went there the average age was 21 so he's got a really really young squad 10 teenagers in that and he wanted to he, he already wanted to trim some of that then they signed the only signing or addition to the squad they had was an 18 year old from france so he hasn't got that experience he wants yet and i think he's wary of too much pressure being on that it feels like they're signing players for tomorrow but expecting results today some pochettino positivity to end the chelsea segment there i like it now time for another little game it's a guessing game london club new manager turbulent times who's next come on tottenham tottenham hotspur that's right now we've got to get through this segment without saying whether harry kane's going to leave or not because who the hell knows <laughs> this might come out and he might have signed sealed and delivered his move to Bayern munich or he might have committed to more more years at tottenham so i'm going to try and talk about tottenham in light of the new manager Ange postacoglu and some of the signings they've made james madison who uh, one of our s- senior sub-editors who's an impassioned Tottenham fan that very much embodies the uh, roller coaster nature of supporting them said that James Madison was the most perfectly Tottenham signing that he's thought of in recent scenes. Is that a positive? That, is a, that, that was a positive. In that, you know, he's, he, he looked at him and always thought he would do brilliantly yeah. at Tottenham. Um, but, but on Postacoglu, Greg, I'm going to come to you from Celtic, um, who your team, you know, you'll have, you'll have watched them play a lot. What do you think of him as a man and as a manager? Do you think he's a good fit? Oh, come on, oh, come on, rephrase the question. What do you think of him, mate? What do you think of him? <laughs> I think he's a good fit. And I think... Mate. Absolutely, mate. Um, <laughs> and I think Donald fans have probably realised that already because he's straight up. Even his kind of... His, his answers to questions about Harry Kane uh, after the, the most recent preseason friendly were just like, look, I'm in constant dialogue with some... Um, I don't know anything about deadlines. That means nothing to me. Like, I need it sorted one way or another. But Harry Kane's fully invested while he's here, and that's all I can say. I've got a bigger project to think about. So there's no, there's no kind of mind games. There's no, you know, there's none of the Machiavellian stuff that you would have got with with uh, Conte or or Mourinho. And I think they've probably already seen too the the shift in style of play, um, purely in terms of the its commitment to. To going out and winning every game and and playing on the front foot and you know I think he he's, one of his complaints after that most recent friendly was that the team kind of settled for the last five minutes of the first half when they were one 0 up rather than going to try and get a second goal. Um, he always it's all about attack, 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 and that's a change as well. Um, you know, Tottenham fans feel that that's kind of in their DNA and not sure about that, but that's <laughs> that's what. They'll, they'll be pleased about that in any in any case. And as a leader of the club, as a, as I say, as a kind of figurehead, I think he realizes that, you know, he's he plays an important role. He's the, you know, the publicly facing figure who's got to answer a wide range of questions. And you know, I, something that leapt out to me is that kind of a uh, alludes to what he's like in press conferences as well. When from his time at Celtic was when he. Uh, a journalist perfectly reasonably asked, you know, you've signed four four players from, from Japan. You know, what 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 makes you think that that Japanese players can come over here and, and be a success? And his his answer was, Look, you need to be a little bit careful, mate. Like, not to group 
everyone from Japan into you know put them in a box. So I've been in Scotland for a little while now, and I realise there's a diff- variety of different Scots here. So like, <laughs> so you know, he's he's sometimes quite surprising in his answers. He's a thinker as well, um, and I, th- I I just I just kind of my fear for him is is still the issues going on around and above him, um, which don't feel to me like they've been solved this summer. And there's another one uh, on top of that was with uh, Joe Lewis. Well, well, technically doesn't own the club, but uh, he's facing some some charges in the US. Um, so I don't feel like that's been resolved, and I don't feel like they've done quite enough in the transfer window yet. James Madison, I, I'd, I'd put him up as one of the best signings of any Premier League club in the summer. Part, particularly, yeah, partly because of the value, like the value, forty million feels like a steal in, in this current kind of market. Um, and also because of his, his output, his figures, his numbers, they're as good as almost anyone, bar Kevin De Bruyne, really, in the Premier League. Uh, so, replacing Hugo Lloris with, with uh, Vicario as well, he needs to be success. Uh, it looks like they're signing Mickey van der Veen. He needs to be success. He's 22, very quick centre-half, but they need to sit, need a centre-half to play alongside Romero, and it's a tough role in a uh, post-developer team because... He plays with full-backs either high and wide or inverted, and you're basically, it's a bit like Liverpool. Your two centre-halves are left worldly exposed to the back, and they need to be quick and athletic. So that's a big one. I'd, I still don't think he has the squad to to do much other than, like, challenge the top six. And the, the final, <laughs> fourth, fifth, and sixth. Like, that's, anything beyond that is no chance. Yeah, you talk about style there, and I just wanted to come back to that point because there's a colleague of mine uh, on the editing desk, who's a big Tottenham fan, so big in fact that he was uh, watching their pre-season matches when he should have been hard at work editing uh, all of your wonderful copy. Um, I, and they were losing, and I was kind of giving him the ha-ha, classic Tottenham, what a load of rubbish. And he was like, nah, it's Ange ball, it's amazing. We're knocking it about all over the place, we're playing wonderful intricate passing moves, it's fantastic. That's all well and good in pre-season, but how does that equate when you get to October and you've had varying form wins and defeats along the way and you're trying to implement a style. Alisson, you know, are Tottenham going to be the club that give him the time to do yeah, that? Sorry, we just we spoke about Burnley's and companies coming and we know how they're going to... Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is no doubt whatsoever about how you'll approach every single game. That is clear. But it's, it's, it isn't a question of whether they're winning 4-3 rather than losing 3-2. I mean, I... I uh, and the, on the, on the, they'll, we'll see both, I suspect. And... I think the key, I think the key is if Kane goes, he'll be given longer. I think, I think, I think that Levy believes any manager who has Kane ought to be just doing the business and doesn't have time for excuses. I don't think it will matter too much if, I mean, it will matter, but I think, I don't think it'll be disastrous if Kane goes because, um, Tom, you've already said his name, Christian Eriksen. The best Spurs have played in the last 20 years is when they had Ericsson at his best, who made the team tick. Ericsson could have a quite quiet game, but if you look back at it, you'd see everything that was good about Spurs came from him. And Madison is the first player they've had since him who has the potential. I don't know for sure it'll work out, but I think he's definitely got the potential, Madison, to be that player. And if you'll know more than me, but if Ange knows how to empower a player like Madison to make him believe. And the early signs are that's the sort of conversations they've been having. 
if Madison is allowed to believe he can be a, important enough to be a creative heartbeat to the team, then I think I think we'll see something almost quite special there. I don't think defensively they're going to be... It's not going to be a season built on solidity. I think they'll leak goals, but I, I, I have a little suspicion that they might they might just start get getting the points from just outscoring in high-scoring games. And the fans will love that so much. I mean, at some point, Daniel Levy has to accept what the fans want matters, which he's never done so far. But I think I think he will. I think they'll might this might be something special because also the the contrast of having so much pragmatism in managerial terms and now going for someone who does seem to fit the Tottenham way, it might just give him longer than than he might normally get if the mid table come up to. Yeah, Ali's right on the the fact that the expect if Kane leaves, the expectations of Tottenham totally changes. But I also think that they have hired a guy who it it feels right now, which is very very early, but it feels right now that if they were ever going to lose Kane, now wouldn't be the worst possible time because what I hear from Postacoglu is a guy who is calm, composed and, and in control as well. And I think that's the key thing that he always, he exudes this aura of everything will be okay. Whereas Conte and, and had this been the case with Mourinho before him, this would have been an absolute disaster with the idea, the possibility of Kane going. Whereas I don't think Postacoglu will act in that way he he has this sense that everything's going to be all right and i think it will be and if if they lose him because the if they lose Kane because the pressure then drops and we saw at the beginning of last season the man city game was that last season or the year before i think it was the year before when Kane went was on strike and wasn't playing and they beat man city under nuno yeah and you actually saw Spurs. I know it's I know it's two years on, and uh, Son had a difficult season last year. But you actually saw Spurs play in a pragmatic but also dynamic way that would would you could definitely see them doing under Ange Postecoglou as well. I don't think it's not like they would be um, freed of the of, of Kane because the possibilities are, are huge with him and all his goals in that side. But I think you could see a, a reinvention. The I, think, I, I just want to sum up what Tom said, which is we are now entering an era era of Polly, Pollyanna Postacoglu. <laughs> if only I could be so concise. <laughs> are we, we, it sounds like we're excited about I Tom. I don't see it, yeah. That feels like quite rare in recent, in recent memory to me. Yeah, look... Uh, I'm excited about what he could do with Spurs if he's given enough support. And I don't mean like splashing silly sums of money that some of his some of his rivals are. Um because he always sees the bigger picture. And Tom's right, like if Kane moves on he'll be disappointed, but he'll he'll consign it to history and he'll focus on the future. Even like summed them up when James Madison signed and he said like when they had their conversations his sales pitch was basically, look, we're going to improve, mate. 
whether you come or not. <laughs> Madison was like, probably had better sales pitches, but it's, it was quite kind of, you know, it was different too. Um, he's just focused. He's not. He's not. He's not friends with the players. He's not even friends with the coaching staff half the time. Like he never brings anyone with him. Very rarely. He tried to bring a, a couple of guys, John Kennedy and uh, Gordon Strachan's son as well. I forget his first name. With him as as coaches, but they didn't come. So and he didn't bring anyone to Celtic. So he's quite a loner, a little bit aloof. But I think the players see his kind of commitment to improving them and to a kind of a clear philosophy and style of play and they want to get that they should want to get on board with that so excited about Tottenham but make sure you save some excitement because we're going to leave the Premier League season preview part one there for now because we're going to go to a bit of breaking news always wanted to do that on a podcast <laughs> I don't know whether listeners will have been able to hear the oohs and ahs and cheers from our colleagues in Times Radio next next to us in the studio where we're recording this podcast that's because England women are through to the World Cup quarterfinals. Are you ready for this? On penalties, 4-2. Lauren James sent off in the 87th minute for a stamp. That's right. Clinging on, waiting for penalties. They win 4-2. They're through. Alison Rudd, I mean, they've done it all now. They're going to win it, aren't they? <laughs> well, they've certainly done it all. I mean, Lauren James has gone from angel to demon. <laughs> yeah, she's got a <laughs> David Beckham narrative, hasn't she? Yeah. I uh, Honestly, I... I is it Japan? No, they they're in the other side, the side of, of the draw. I think Japan are the best team at the Women's World Cup, so they're going to win it. But um, England to get to the final. England to get to the final. Gregor, I think they're good enough. Um, but I agree. I think Japan are probably the best team that we've seen so far. So, but I, I think that, I think you know they've, they've had some worried, some difficulties with injuries this this year, but I still think they are good enough. Well, we had been hoping to hear from Molly Hudson down under in Australia, but I'm sure she's probably having something verging on a panic attack after that kind of performance <laughs> and having to file a copy that you can read on the Times website now. And I'm sure we'll hear from Molly very, very soon. That's it for part one of our pre-season preview. Join us again very, very soon when we'll be talking about all the rest of the clubs in the Premier League. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to yeah. bring something like this to life. And yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend <laughs> that I don't, right? Hold now. it in, hold on. And our current faves. And... Luffy must have his dues. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.